Right, good evening, church. Hey, someone's alive. Trev, thanks so much. Hey guys, it's so good to be here. And um, if you were here last week, you would have known that we have started a new series on the kingdom of God. And the reason why we want to spend some time pausing, speaking about the kingdom of God, diving into the kingdom of God, is because Jesus does exactly that. In fact, if you had to read through the Gospels, you would probably notice that it may just be the thing he speaks about the most. So I would just kind of put forward to you right from the outset that the kingdom of God deserves our attention. It deserves our focus. And I really want to invite you into that. Uh, Some of you have already been involved in some discussions around this. You've already been discussing it in your life groups. And I know we've already discovered that it's, it's not one of those simple things that you speak about for five minutes and everyone understands it. Uh, we've already seen last week that there are kind of some tensions involved in the, in the kingdom of God. And, and what he spoke about last week, and if you weren't here, I really encourage you to go listen to it. Not so that we get those podcast listens and views, but rather that we are journeying into this thing together. And that you kind of are, are kind of sticking with us on this. But last week we already saw that the kingdom of God is this incredible future hope. And there's this going to be this time where God comes in His fullness, the kingdom comes in His fullness, and, and everything that works against God's kingdom being here is going to be eliminated in absolute finality. And we're going to be living in this incredible reality that we cannot even begin to understand. All right? That's this future hope. And yet we also saw last week that the kingdom of God is also a very powerful present reality brought into this reality by King Jesus, all right, by the King and by Jesus. And, and so we've already seen that there's kind of a number of things going on here. And I, I think that's going to make it uh, one of those subjects that is going to require, as I said earlier, it's going to require some of our focus. It's going to require some of our attention. Some of these words, especially if you've kind of grown up in church, may sound very familiar. But as we look under the hood and as we look through the pages of Scripture, we may start discovering that some of the ways the kingdom of God is spoken about is maybe a bit different to how we've understood it. And it really is, and I just want to be quite plain about this up front, is that this is one of those topics that's, you know, what people have done, like so many other biblical topics, is there's kind of one angle and there's going to be a bunch of churches and a bunch of pastors that have an angle on the kingdom of God and and they're going to give you their 20 verses that give you that angle. And there's going to be the church around the corner and they've got a different 20 verses and they give you a different angle on the kingdom of God. And then some guy from this church, some guy from that church go for coffee and they have a big old holy disagreement around things like the kingdom of God. And whereas sometimes what I think we need to do with topics like this is put it all on the table, even if it means not always feeling like I can wrap my mind around it. And I think sometimes instead of a topic being something that I I look at for five seconds and I understand it, sometimes it's like a multifaceted diamond that I hold up. And I can look at it from this angle and appreciate it and appreciate its beauty and its power. And then I I can look at it from this angle and I can appreciate it. And then I can look at it from another angle. And the more I look at it, the more angles that I look at this thing, the more I start to see about this, this diamond, or in this case, the kingdom of God. And some of you are like, but Stephen, this sounds like too much work. And I kind of want to say to you, 
well, which way would you rather have it? I used to call it bumper sticker theology. These days, it's kind of with millennials and Gen Zs and stuff. It's kind of more like meme theology, meaning you can take everything that we know about God and put it into 10 bumper stickers or 10 memes. And I'm just going to say, I mean, guys, we're talking about an infinite God. And do you really think it makes sense that we're going to boil down our understanding of an infinite God into 10 trite phrases to put on our WhatsApp? Or maybe, or maybe God has revealed His complexity to us. There's so much more He hasn't even revealed to us. But as He has revealed His complexity to us, there are going to be moments where we're like, I I don't know if I've got this. And if you're there, I want to say you're probably more on the right track than the person who stands up and says, I've got this. In fact, one of the most famous theologians, St. Augustine from the 4th century, says the minute you do that, you've probably missed God. And so as we dive into the kingdom of God, let's just humbly step in. We're going to look at it from a number of angles and uh, there are going to be moments where we're going to feel stretched. But, But I hope that as we walk into this, the mist starts to clear and you start to see with greater clarity the king and the kingdom. So as I spoke about this topic last week, I revealed some of my geekiness. And growing up as a kid, I used to uh, watch what would be called kind of fantasy movies and, and those kinds of books. And I got stuck into the, the Chronicles of Narnia books. I got stuck into the Lord of the Rings. And that kind of led to the next series and the next series and the next series. And uh, I'm still kind of reading those kind of novels. I really enjoy that. And um, I've spoken about this a number of times now where these kinds of books bring us into this world, a world of powers, a world of dark versus light, a, a world of kind of strange beings and uh, uh, um, kings and queens and kingdoms. And you usually uh, the fate of the world riding on either one person or a small group of people. And what I want to talk about today is that last part, where if you've read Narnia, it's a couple of children, and the fate of the world is riding on what happens in their lives. And if you've read Lord of the Rings, the, the, the whole mission is orientated around Frodo Baggins. Now, if you don't know Lord of the Rings, read the book's and then watch the movies. That'd be my preference to you. Um, but Frodo Baggins is a hobbit. And if you know anything about hobbits, hobbits weren't known for their courage. Hobbits weren't known for their military might. Hobbits weren't known for being philosophers. They weren't known for being soldiers. They weren't even known for being intellectuals. They were kind of mild country folk. And yet, Frodo Baggins being a hobbit, he's brought into the story, this, this mission of light and dark and powers. And, and, and there are other characters that maybe if you or I were writing the story, we might say, well, they are more likely heroes. So maybe we think about Aragorn. Or maybe you think about Legolas and all the ladies are like, yeah, Aragorn and Legolas, you know? All right, but, but they're kind of the, the typical heroes, and while we might aspire to be the Aragorns and the Legolases of this world, I think we more identify with Frodo, the, the reluctant hero, the flawed hero, the, the one who in his own self is completely incapable of being successful in this mission, and yet he's at the center of the story, and he's the one we're rooting for. And what I want to speak about today is that's us. We are Frodo Beckons, we are those hobbits 
We are these flawed beings who have somehow been caught up in a story way bigger than ourselves. And in our own abilities and capacities, we are completely incapable of mission success. And yet, somehow, we are at the center of the story. And so today, as we speak about the kingdom of God, I want to speak specifically about human beings are called to be key participants in the kingdom of God. So that's where I'm going. And um, this morning, we didn't have power. We had this wonderful load shedding. And so I wasn't able to make use of my PowerPoint uh, because we're going to be looking at so many scriptures and they are going to be behind me. But the PowerPoints will also be made available on the app for your further study as we dive into this together. But here's a question for you. And the question is this. In Scripture, when is the first time, starting from page one, when is the first time, if we're speaking about kingdoms, when is the first time reigning and ruling is mentioned? And I think this whole idea of the kingdom of God starts in page one, two, and three of Scripture. And so when we open the pages of Scripture to page one, what we see is this incredible God that existed before space and time. We see this God for reasons largely known mostly to himself. He decided to create. And and everything that we see was brought into existence by him. And so, I mean, the last hundred years have been amazing in terms of how we understand how vast and complex our universe is. And we start seeing like, you know, hundreds of zeros on the screen. And for those of you who are not mathematicians, we're like, I don't even know what that means. But we just know that our universe is vast and large. And as we go through Scripture, we see God has created these planets and these galaxies and these stars. And then what kind of happens is the camera goes from zooming out to zooming in to this little tiny galaxy, to this little tiny planet. And while we kind of see that as like a a de-escalation, the way the story is told, it's actually an escalation. It's going to a climax. God's pinnacle of creation is when He brings humanity into the story. And so we're going to start kind of on page one of, in in my Bible, halfway through page two, and we're going to look at how this happens and and how this fits into the rest of the story. So Genesis 1, verses 26, and then God said, after having created everything else, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Just going to pause there for now. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And so there's been a lot of debates over the last 2,000 years, in fact, 6,000 years. What does that mean to be made in the image of God? And I don't know if there's simple answers to that question, but I think today's message is going to be kind of an answer to that question. But what we see is there's something that sets humanity apart from the rest of creation. And I know some of you love trees and and some of you love mountains and some of you love blue whales and some of you love rhinos and save the rhino and and save the the, the fish and and save the art fark. And and those are all wonderful, creative, beautiful creatures that show a beautiful, wonderful creator. But when it comes to humanity, Genesis 2 speaks about the fact that God invests some of himself into us. And so one theologian I love, he says that humans are dust and divine breath. God invests himself in us. And these verses that we read, there's something about us that we are to be image bearers of this, of this God. 
Now, this is not a perfect metaphor, and all metaphors are going to fall flat somewhere. But maybe this kind of helps you. Um, there are some people here in Riverside that have known my dad, and some of them have known my dad longer than they've known me, and they would come up to me and they say, hey, Stephen, the more I see you grow up and the more I see you preach, I just see your dad in you. And as my boys grow up, and, and many of you guys are involved in kids' ministry, and as my boys grow up, people come up to me and they say, hey, Steve, we just see you in your boys. And there's something about this idea that when, just when creation looks at humanity, if an alien had to come from some foreign existence and had to look at humanity, the original idea was that by looking at us, they should see something of the love and the power and the majesty of our God because we are His image. Now, I know we don't always see that. We don't always see that in the people around us and we don't always see that in ourselves and we're kind of going to look at um, what went wrong. But this scene that we've just looked at is before counseling, is before mom and dad issues, is before there was disease and, and mental illness and wars and selfishness and corruption. And so here in these verses, we see God's intent that humanity set up to live on planet earth, bearing the image of God. And we start to see what this means as we read on. And so just starting again from verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so back to that first question, when in the Bible do we see the first time speaking about ruling and reigning? And this is it. It's referring to us as God's creation being called and positioned with regards to the rest of creation to rule. Now, when you hear the word rule, don't picture governments, don't picture your CEO, don't picture kind of traditional views of leadership. This kind of leadership is going to be defined by this God because this is a delegated authority. God is still the ultimate sovereign. He is still the ultimate king. He is the creator. We are still the created. And yet God positions us on planet earth to kind of be kings and queens of creation, to rule and reign in such a way that people look at it and say, oh, that's what God is like. What a high calling that is. And that absolutely blows my mind. And we do this and we see this just for a few moments in history. We see this in Adam and Eve as they fully submitted to God and fully empowered by Him. One of the ways I've kind of tried to understand this is, and I don't know if this is this way, so don't kind of fight me on the facts of this. Just use your imagination. We all know the brand Apple. And Apple's got its kind of its own thing going on. And, and Apple is kind of like... I know it's subjective, but Apple's kind of like the Jedi of technological products out there, right? And, and they've got this DNA, they've got this way of creating, they've got this ethos behind all that they do. And if you work there, it's kind of this real unique thing, right? And, and Steve Jobs started it all, but he died a few years ago and they've kind of carried on in like. 
But now I want you to imagine that you may be the CEO of Apple South Africa. Now, I don't know if there's such a thing, but just, just use your imagination. Now, what would make you an effective CEO of Apple South Africa? Would it be saying, oh, look, love what the guys in the States are doing, but I've got some of my own ideas. And I think I'm going to take Apple into my own hands and I'm going to take this brand and I'm going to put my own spin on it. Would that make you an effective CEO of Apple South Africa? No. What would make you an effective CEO of Apple South Africa is the degree to which you incarnate the values and the DNA and the vibe and the heart and the understanding of Apple Global into your company. And the degree to which you align your processes and your staff and your advertising and your marketing and your products towards the bigger picture is going to make you effective as kind of a local CEO. And that is what God's calling us to. He's calling us to as, as reigning and ruling delegated authority holders, image bearers to be submitted to him and to rule and to lead in such a way that we are bringing his values somehow also empowered by him into this world. And, and that's the ideal. But now, how have we done on this? All right, how have we done on this? Just, just look through the pages of history. Look at the news or, or look at your own life. How have we done as human beings being creatures who reign and rule in a way that if anyone had to observe it, we see God's reign and rule. We see God's kingdom coming. And here's the reality. We are horrible CEOs. We are horrible image bearers. And, and somehow, and, and maybe you see it in your own life, there are these moments where there are kind of this alignment and we do see God's kingdom come and we are aligned with Him and we are fully submitted to Him and we are somehow participating mysteriously with Him in reigning and ruling in our little zone and the things that God is calling us to. And there are those moments, but for the most part, we are dropping the ball, right? Even if, I mean, let's take the lens off ourselves. Let's just look at even the Bible heroes. I mean, starting right at the beginning, let's take a name like Abraham. Now, man, when Abraham was fully submitted and obedient to God and when he was kind of participating with God in God's kingdom, just such incredible stuff happened. One of the moments was right at the beginning when Abraham was in a foreign land, in a foreign city, and God appeared to him and called him to go. And he says, as you go, I'm going to take this act of obedience and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through your nation, I'm going to bless the whole of planet Earth. And so I'm sure Abraham had a few questions. Go where? God's like, just, just trust me. And Lord, what's going to happen tomorrow and next month and next year? Just, just, just go and trust me. And to Abraham's credits, he trusted God and he went. Now that might seem like a pretty small act of obedience and yet that began such a large move of God's kingdom coming on planet earth. And so what a moment of faith and what a high point of faith. But then in Abraham's life, there's a number of moments where he so dropped the ball. So kind of leading from a high moment into a low moment, God again, he says to Abraham, listen man, I'm gonna take you and your descendants and I'm gonna, again, make you into a great nation. Now Abraham was about 100 years old at that stage. Now at 100 years old, just in case, it's just kind of the same as 100 years today, 100 years, 3,000 years ago, same thing. All right, you're not thinking about kids anymore. 
you're thinking about retirement plans and you're thinking about investments and you're thinking about, you know, how are you going to live the last of your days? And God comes to this man who's got no children. His wife is barren and he says, but I'm going to give you a child and through that child, I'm going to bless the world. And again, high point, Abraham believed God. And that again was a moment of faith and a moment of God's kingdom coming. But then fast forward a few years and Abraham got impatient, just like us. We pray on Monday, we want the answer by Thursday. All right, Abraham, you're talking about 15, 20, 25 years later. Abraham's like, hey, listen, God, I, I trusted you and obeyed you. I went, but I'm not seeing anything. And he's like, listen, man, I mean, maybe Sarah and I have been doing like playing our part, but it doesn't seem like you're playing your part. No children to speak of. And so Abraham decided to do what Adam and Eve decided to do, which was to take matters into their own hands and just to decide that they knew best. And, and they're gonna kind of do it their way. And they're gonna put their own spin onto things. And so the way Abraham did it was to just end discussion with his wife. They, he took the concubine, Hagar, and he slept with her and they had an offspring, Ishmael. And that just created such havoc and continued to cause such havoc for the people of Israel. So high point, moments of submission and obedience in God's kingdom coming. Low point, havoc and chaos. Then we move on to a guy like Moses. Now, man, oh man, if ever there was someone that God used in mighty ways, it was Moses. When Moses was submitted to God and, and obedient to God, we saw his kingdom come. I mean, when Moses faced off the most powerful person on planet earth, King Pharaoh, God, through Moses, released his people from slavery. And then we get to, you know, we're going to, we need to cross this ocean and God could have just kind of split the seas, but he chose to reign and rule through Moses. And he says, Moses, I want you to be the one who touches the water with the staff. And as he does that, God's kingdom comes and the seas split and the nation of Israel goes through there. And so through Moses, we see such incredible moments of mysterious participation with God and God's kingdom coming. But then there were such moments of weakness and such moments of like, seriously, Moses, what, what were you thinking? So, but later into the story, uh, God wants to provide some water for his nation. And so he says, Moses, I just want you to speak to this rock. But Moses was having a bad day. Moses was having a bad leadership day. He was frustrated. He headed up to here with the people of Israel. So he's angry, he's frustrated, and he takes it out on this rock and he strikes it twice. God still brings the water out of the rock because God is that good. But he says to Moses, because of your disobedience and your anger, I'm not going to allow you to enter into the promised land. So again, moments of obedience and submission to God's kingdom coming and moments of Moses taking things into his own hands, we see chaos. And then we get to someone like King David. Now, when, when David was submitted to God, we saw, we, we see worship. We see the nation worshiping. We see the, kind of the expansion of the nation of Israel. And we see thriving and flourishing. But then there are these moments in King David's life, and there are many of these moments where he just dropped the ball time and time again. One of the more famous moments was when he had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And there are other moments where he was just unnecessarily violent in his life. And God says, because of this uh, act of adultery and because of your violence, there are certain things that I'm not going to allow you to do. And instead of bringing God's kingdom, David brought chaos into his family and into the nation. 
But then we get his son, the next king, King Solomon. And when he was submitted to God, man, he was considered the wisest person that has ever lived. Literally, kings and queens from all over planet Earth came to hear his wisdom, and and Solomon would be the first to say, it wasn't my wisdom. It is somehow God giving me wisdom. It's a a gift of of grace from God, and there's this way that somehow Solomon ruled and reigned on planet Earth under the goodness of God. And in those moments, Israel was prosperous, and there was worship, and, and there was faith in the land. But then Solomon decided to take things into his own hands. And he decided to take other wives, in fact, hundreds of wives and concubines. And then he decided to follow after their gods. And what happened was, because it happens in the head, happens in the body, what happens was the rest of the nation started going after these gods and the nation went into chaos. And by the time Solomon died, the nation was all but completely divided. And that's kind of been the story of humanity ever since. Just... Glimpses, glimpses of of submission to God and obedience and glimpses of God's kingdom coming as we participate with him. But then in between these glimpses, there are just too many moments that we like to admit where the ball is dropped, whether we're talking about ourselves or the people around us, our Bible heroes or our historical heroes, that is kind of what we see. And so I want to ask you at this point of our message tonight, Well, what do you think this narrative, here's what God wants to do, here's what's actually going on. What do you think this is trying to get us to think about? What kinds of questions do you think this story of humanity is trying to get us to ask? And and, and I think what we're just needing to observe here is that we can recognize, man, that, that God has made humans to be image bearers, He wants us to be a full, delegated, authority-bearing, image-bearing rulers on planet Earth. But as Adam and Eve decided to take things in their own hands from that moment onwards, we've just been horrible at that. And while we see these moments of God's kingdom coming, most of the time it's us being unfaithful and dropping the ball. And so I think what we are starting to, the kinds of questions we're starting to ask is, is there not at least one human? Is there not at least one human that is going to be fully submitted to God? That is not only a few glimpses here and there, but it's a life that is fully empowered and submitted to God. Isn't there like a a souped up superhuman that is not hindered by the kinds of sins and failings that hinder us and every other human being? Is there not a human that we can look at that we are going to see God's kingdom coming all the time through that human? And then Jesus rocks up in the scene and he says, the kingdom of God is among you. And by implication, he means, what he means by that is the kingdom of God is among you because I am among you. I'm the one who brings the kingdom of God. And I'm going to be the fulfillment of everything that God intended for human beings. And so I want to look at just some of the ways that Jesus is described in the Scriptures. And, and this is going to be just kind of looking at a number of high points here. And maybe some of these things sound so familiar. But just keep in mind this whole narrative that we've been looking at up to this point in God's intentions for humanity and the failures of humanity. Look at how Jesus is described. And we heard Rob's talk about it earlier today, that Jesus is spoken about as Messiah. In English, it's Christ. 
All right, and, and that's a very specific Old Testament figure uh, that as the prophets looked ahead and, and heard from God that there was going to be an anointed figure that is going to come as a royal figure for the nation of Israel. And Jesus says, I'm that. But not only is he Jesus Christ, Christ is not a surname of Jesus, it's a title Messiah. But we also, we kind of say quite quickly, we say it in our songs, we say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But that word Lord is, is insane. It, it's awesome because the average person around that time would have said, Caesar is Lord. So when the Bible authors come saying, no, Jesus Christ is Lord, that's a royal term. That's a term about, you know, He is more powerful. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is superior to all other kings. Then when we look at a passage, it's quite a dense passage, but I encourage you to get into it one day. It's Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, where Jesus is described as the new Adam. Because the old Adam was set up to be kind of a king of this cosmos, as an image bearer, and yet he failed. And Jesus is described as the new Adam, the one who doesn't fail, and the one who undoes all the chaos of the first Adam. Then in Colossians 1 verses 15, Jesus is described as the full image of God. See, that, that was given to us, but something broke. It wasn't removed from us. In, in many ways, one of our understandings of social justice is that all human beings are created in the image of God. And yet there's a, a frailty about that. There's a brokenness about that. Kind of like looking into a broken mirror. That we can see it, but it's distorted by brokenness and by sinfulness. And that's kind of the reality we live in. But Jesus is described as one who is the full and complete image of God. Jesus is also described as the perfect human, completely free from the things that cripple us. And he's also described as God. And, and I know this is mind-boggling. How can you be human and God? But this is the unique claim of Jesus Christ. He's not claiming just to be a perfect human. He's claiming to be God himself. And we put this all together. What do we get? And what we get is Jesus comes in to be what we failed to be. And the way God steps into our story is to per permanently fuse himself to humanity, to be and to do what you and I could never be and do. And so Jesus becomes the full picture of Genesis 1 and 2. And he fulfills everything that you and I failed at. And so God binds himself to humanity. He does this. He doesn't just come for us, which he does, but he comes as us. And to fulfill what we could never fulfill. And, and, and so this is the good news of the kingdom. That it is in Jesus that the kingdom of God comes. That the image of God is finally here. That God is finally reigning and ruling through someone who is unhindered by sin and brokenness, through someone who is royalty, through someone who is the picture of God, through someone who is the perfect human, through someone who is God Himself, through someone through whom every word that is mentioned and every action that is taken brings the kingdom and the reign and the rule of God here. But He doesn't just leave it there. Because then He invites us into His kingdom. And the way he does this is by inviting us to submit to the king. We spoke about this last week. Where we recognize him as the rightful king. Where we recognize that he is the one who fulfilled what you and I cannot fulfill. And instead of condemning us, he gives us his own nature. And in fact, one of the ways the scripture speaks about us 
it speaks about us as being in Christ. And so as we step into the kingdom under His reign and His rule and His authority, we are described as kind of a new humanity where we show the world what it truly means to be what God originally intended. And the only way we do that is in and through Jesus, the, the King, the King of the kingdom who wants to reign and rule and wants to involve us. And again, as we go through this series and we're gonna look at it more and more, we can't import kind of worldly understandings of, of what it means to reign and rule in this because Jesus is gonna show us that his idea of reigning and ruling is very different to the world's idea of reigning and ruling. And, and we're called to be that in the world today. And so this is what Christianity is about. It's not about do you go to church once or twice a month? May involve that. It's not about do you maybe get to the church every now and again. It may involve that. It's not about do you sing some some nice songs. And again, it might involve that. The real heart of Christianity is, are you in the kingdom? Are you submitted to the new Adam and the real and rightful ruler? And in doing that, are you being renewed into the image of God? And are you starting to live an active faith in this world as an image bearer reigning and ruling under Christ? And as we've spoken about, we live in this tension. We're still in this evil age. We're still surrounded by sin. We've still got kind of sin and flesh in our own lives. And it's, it's gonna be a battle until the day we die, our Christ returns. And there is this glorious future that we look ahead to. Yet nonetheless, being a Christian means God is at work in us. Christ is in us, we are in Him. And we become this new humanity in the world. And so a resource, I know I've chatted to a lot of you guys about this resource, but a resource I love is the Bible Project. And the kind of the brain behind the Bible Project is a theologian called Tim Mackey. And he says, Jesus becomes the humans we were meant to be. Through him, we become the humans we were meant to be. And now, if you've been coming to Riverside for a number of years, or if you've listened to podcasts or watched sermons on TV, you know that when we get to this kind of time, about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the sermon, you, you know, normally we kind of start wrapping things up and we start giving you some practical how-tos, some things to write down, five points, three do-thises, two things to think about. And, and just today, I just want to tell you that I'm not going to do that. I, I don't think I can. And, and again, for reasons that I spoke about earlier, sometimes it's not about, you know, Stephen, the wrestle is great. And for those who want to wrestle with this, you know, that's up to them. But just give me two things to write down. Sometimes it's not about just two things to go and do and to write down. And I think sometimes what God wants to do is overwhelm us with His reality and overwhelm us with His truth. Even if it means sometimes leaving it, it's in a place of, I don't even know where to go from here, but there's something in me that's moved. And he wants us to rest in that. He wants that to wash over us. And somehow being in that place, we are gonna meet him and be transformed. And I'm hoping as we are just there that the fog clears. And so as we wrap up tonight, I'm not gonna give you three points. I'm actually gonna carry on going. There's one more place I wanna take you to and I won't take too long, but I think this is so important. If you've been at Riverside for any period of time, you would know that we've spoken quite a lot about the new creation. We've spoken quite a lot about what we looked at last week, the age to come. 
that there's going to be the moments where the things that shackle us and the things that hurt us and confuse us and bring about pain in this world will be finally removed. And we're going to live in this kingdom of peace and justice and love and purity and wonder and awe and beauty and purpose for all of eternity. We've also spoken about the fact that we're not going to be in this new reality and be having debates. It's like, oh, do you think God is real? And do you think Jesus was a real guy? Because he's going to be there in his fullness. And in order to even cope with the reality of him being amongst us, God's going to give us new bodies that are powerful. And we're not even going to have the opportunity to sin and to fail. And so there's this going to be this, we're going to be living in perpetual awe of the presence of God amongst us. Another way some of us have come to understand that is that, you know, we're going to kind of be singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And of, of course, there are these moments and these moments of revelation that speak about this. But some of us have been left with this idea that the new creation is just going to be like one long church service. And I know that for some of you or some of your friends or some of your neighbors, that's the worst news ever. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. And, and as someone who loves church and loves worship, I don't even know if like one perpetual worship service is, is a good news story to me. I, I do suspect that if Jesus was here in his fullness, that may change things. But I don't know if you've ever asked the question out loud or felt the permission to ask the question, what else are we going to be doing? Okay, we're going to be singing and Jesus is going to be there and? Well, I want to show you that the answer to that and is the end of the story. And I want to show you just the future of the saints and the new creation. And, and I know that this is going to sound absolutely crazy unless everything we've spoken about is true. So I want to leave a number of scriptures with you that are going to show the fulfillment of the story of humanity and the kingdom of God. And, and I, I, I just really hope that this blows your mind. I hope it confuses you and then blows your mind. So, so listen to this. Paul's writing to a church, church in Corinth, and, and he starts speaking to them about some of their relational difficulties. And he's kind of saying, listen, guys, is there no one wise among you that can just help you sort this out? And then he says this. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And half a verse later, he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? And then he moves on. And I kind of wish I was sitting with Paul. And it's like, hey, Paul, just stop right there. What did you say? And Paul's like, but did you not know? Like, what church have you been going to up to now? Who's been doing the teaching? And I'm like, what? No one teaches about that. What do you mean we're going to be ruling the world? What do you mean we're going to be judging angels? And Paul's just like, ah, next, moving on. Then he's writing to another pastor. He's writing to Timothy. He's leading the church at Ephesus. And he says this, if we endure meaning we live this life and this age in a way that endures, if we endure, we will also reign with him. It's like, what? I thought Jesus is the king we're waiting for. Well, what does that mean? Revelation 2.26, to him who overcomes. And again, we live in this age of, of the kingdom of God, but we also this, this age of pain and difficulty. To him who overcomes and does my will, Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done. The one who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. What? I thought we were gonna just sing songs all day long. What do you mean authority over the nations? Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, again, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. 
Now, I, 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 I don't know if I should do this. I'm, I want you just like, you know, for whom amongst you, is this like the first time you've ever heard about this? And I, I know this is maybe like, Stephen, is this real? And I just, you know, they're the verses for you and you can go and look at them yourselves. But doesn't it make sense that this was God's plan from page one of Scripture? Now, when we get to the new creation again, once again, it is a, a delegated authority. We don't become these autonomous, independent CEOs and put our own spin on things. We are gonna be fully submitted and fully animated and empowered by God. He is still the ultimate king and he delegates an authority to us and somehow in the future, there's mysterious participation of reigning and ruling with him. And I'm just kind of like, just let that sink in. And if there's anything that I want you to take home, one point of focus, it is this. Try to emphasize that in the verses we were looking at earlier. Guys, what we do in this life matters for that life. This life is almost like a training ground preparing us for that life. And what it means for a Christian is not, man, I prayed the magic prayer, now I go and I get to be in heaven one day. What it means to be a Christian is my image is being restored in the King and I start to live it out, albeit sometimes in broken and failing ways, but I fall forward with Jesus and He trains me and He grows me and I become more submitted to Him and obedient to Him. I start seeing more and more of His kingdom coming as I live this faith out and I, as I pray this faith out. And somehow that goes into the next life. And so what I hope is starting to shift in your mind is that we're being called, as we think about our participation in the kingdom of God, to move from a passive to an active faith. From a passive to an active fighting of sin. Spoke about this as a worship team just now. From an active to, uh, sorry, from a passive to an active prayer life, we're praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. And what does that mean? God wants to use you to be fully submitted to him and through you to start seeing his kingdom come. And God wants to move you from, an act, from a passive to active participation, from passive to active leaning into Jesus, from passive to active obedience, from passive to active submission to God. And so as we pray, I just wonder if God has highlighted an area in your life that maybe He's uniquely calling to in terms of an active obedience. And I'm not simply talking about kind of being a good boy or girl. Maybe there are things in your life that God is calling you to obey Him in or to trust Him in or to make a, a move of obedience. Or maybe He's calling you into a more prayerful walk with Him so that you can start being part of how He affects change in the world around you and in you, seeing His kingdom come. And I don't know what it looks like for you, but I wanna pray that we make some wise decisions tonight together as a church. So Father, Father, I pray that the first thing that we kind of feel tonight is a sense of awe and worship of Jesus.
And, and, and that's, we, we, we've grown in our understanding of Jesus. And, and the view of Jesus in our minds and in our imagination has just increased. And for that reason, our faith has increased and our worship has increased. And the recognition that God's kingdom is mysteriously here. And that I'm called to be part of that. And I pray that there's a sense of excitement within us. A sense of powerful invitation. And I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you are moving amongst us even now. Inviting us and maybe even just bringing your finger and placing it upon us, speaking to us about certain areas of our lives where you're calling us to faith, active obedience and submission and just to have the faith that that somehow means we're gonna be participating in your kingdom. Father, thank you that you're not like a school teacher wanting to give us a B minus or a C minus or an A. Thank you that you're inviting us to such a great story. A story that bleeds into the eternal future. But a story that matters today. So Holy Spirit, speak to us. Reveal to us just one or two unique areas you're calling us to. And you want us to pray about this. You want us to grow in our faith about this. You want us to grow in truth about this. You want us to see how Jesus is the answer to our failures. And you want us to trust you. And you want us to walk in obedience. And so Father, as, as we are doing some real business with you right now, Decisions are being made to step into the role that we were always created to fulfill. The, the role, Jesus, that you perfectly fulfilled and you should still call us to be part of today. And Father God, as we, as we grow in this and as we go with this in this week, may, may we see your kingdom and may we continue to walk in this invitation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.